0: VOLUME 2 CHAPTER 3 OF THE HEIDENMAUER OR THE BENEDICTINES A LEGEND OF THE RHINE BY JAMES FEDEMORE COOPER THIS IS A LIBRIVOX RECORDING ALL LIBRIVOX RECORDINGS ARE IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN FOR MORE INFORMATION OR TO VOLUNTEER PLEASE VISIT LIBRIVOX.ORG READ BY JOEL Kendrick. THE HEIDENMAUER BY JAMES Fedimore COOPER VOLUME 2 CHAPTER 3 THUS I RENOUNCE THE WORLD AND WORLDLY THINGS ROGERS It will be remembered that the time of this tale was in the winning month of June, when the sun had fallen beneath those vast and fertile plains of the west, among which the Rhine winds its way a swift and turbid through noble current that, like some bold mountaineer, has made a descent from the passes of Switzerland to gather tribute from every valley on his passage. There remained in the air the bland and seductive warmth of the season." Still, the evening was not a calm, moonlight night like those which grace a more alluring climate. But there regained in its quiet a character of somber repose that constantly reminded all of the hour. It seemed a moment more adapted to rest than to indulgence. The simple habits of Durkheim caused its burghers to shut their doors early and, as usual, the gates of the town were closed when the bells sounded the stroke of eight. The peasants of the Jägerthal had not even waited so long before they sought their beds. It was, however, near ten when a private door in the dwelling of Heinrich Frey opened, and a party of three individuals issued into the street. All were so closely muffled as effectually to conceal their persons. The leader, a man, paused to see that the way was clear, and then, beckoning to his companions, who were of the other sex, to follow, he pursued his way within the shadows thrown from the houses. It was not long ere they all reached the gate of the town, which opened to the hill of the Heidenmauer. There was a stronger watch afoot that night than was usual in Durkheim, though the city, and especially at a moment when armies ravaged the Palatinate, was never left without a proper guard. A few armed men paced the street, at the point where it terminated with the defenses, and a sentinel was visible on the superior wall. "'Who cometh?' demanded an arquebusier. The muffled man approached, and spoke to the leader of the guard in a low voice. It would seem that he spoke him fair." For no sooner did he utter the little he had to say than a bustle among the citizens announced an eager desire to do his pleasure. The keys were produced and a way made for the exit of the party. But the man went no farther. Having procured the egress of his companions, he returned to the town, stopping, however, to hold discourse with those on watch before he disappeared. Then, without the gate, the females began to ascend. The way was difficult, for it lay among terraces and vineyards by means of winding narrow footpaths, and, as it appeared, the limbs of those who were now obliged to thread them felt all the difficulties of the steep acclivity. At length, though not without often stopping to breathe and rest, they reached the fallen pile of the ancient wall of the camp. Here both seated themselves to recover their strength in profound silence. They had mounted by means of a path that conducted them towards that extremity of the mountain which overlooked the valley of our tail. The sky was covered with fleecy clouds that dimmed the light of the moon so as to render objects beneath uncertain and dull though occasionally the mild orbs seemed to sail into a little field of blue shedding all its light below but these momentary illuminations were too fitful to permit the eye to become accustomed to the change and ere any saw distinctly the driving vapor would again intercept the rays to this melancholy character of the hour must be added the plaintive sound of a night breeze which audibly rustled the cedars a heavy respiration from the one of the two who, by her air and attire, was evidently the superior, was taken by the other as a permission to speak. "'Well, thrice in my life have I mounted this hill at night,' she said, "'and few of my ears could do the deed by the light of the sun. Hist "'Histils, hearest thou not uncommon? "'Not, but mine own voice, which, for so mute a person, is in sooth of little want. "'Truly there is other sound. "'Come hither to the ruin. "'I fear we are abroad at a perilous moment.' As both arose, there was but a minute before their persons were concealed in such a manner as to render it little probable that any but a very curious eye would remark their presence. It was evident that many footsteps were approaching and nearly in their direction. Ilse trembled, but her companion, more self-possessed and better supported by her reason, was as much or even more excited by curiosity than by fear. The ruined hut in which they stood was within the cover of the cedars, where a dull light alone penetrated. By means of this light, however, a band of men was seen moving across the camp. They came in pairs and their march was swift and nearly noiseless. The glittering of a morion as it passed beneath some opening in the trees and the reclining arquebuses no less than their order showed them to be warriors. The line was long, extending to some hundreds of men. They came in this swift and silent manner from the direction of the Jägerthal and passed away among the melancholy cedars and that of the plain of the Rhine. When the last of this long and ghost-like band had disappeared, Ilse appeared to revive. In the sooth, she said, they seem to be men. Do they, too, come to visit the holy hermit? Believe it or not, they have gone down by the rear of Durkheim and will soon be beyond our wishes or our fears." "'Lady, of what origin are they, and on what errand do they come?' This exclamation of old Ilse sufficiently betrayed the nature of her own doubts, though the firmness of her companion's manner proved that, now the armed men were gone, she no longer felt distrust. "'This may or may not be a happy omen,' she answered musingly. There was a goodly number and warriors, too, of fair appearance. "'Thrice have I visited this camp at night, and never before has it been my fate to view its tenants.' Thinkest thou they were Romans? Or are they the followers of the Hun? They were living men, but let us not forget our errand. Without permitting further discourse, the superior of the two of them took the way toward the hut of the hermit. At first, her footstep was timid and unassured, for strengthened as she was by reflection and knowledge, the sudden and sprite-like passage of such a line of warriors across the deserted camp was indeed likely to affect the confidence of one even more bold. Rest thy old limbs on this bit of fallen wall, good nurse, said the muffled female, while I go within. Thou wilt await me here. Go, of heaven's mercy, and speak the holy anchor at fair. Take what thou canst of comfort and peace for thine own soul, and if there should be a blessing or a relic more than thou needest, remember her who fondled thy infancy, and who, I may say, and say it I do with pride, may thee the woman of virtue and merit thou art. God be with thee, and with me murmured the female as she moved slowly away. The visitor of the anchorite hesitated at the door of his hut. Encouraged by sounds within and certain that the holy man was still afoot by the strong light that shone through the fissures of the wall, she at length summoned resolution to knock. Enter, of God's will, returned a voice from within. The door opened, and the female stood confronted to the person of the anchorite. The cloak and hood both fell from the female's head, as by an involuntary weakness of her hands, and each stood gazing long, wistfully, and perhaps in doubt at the other. The female, more prepared for the interview, was the first to speak. "'Odo,' she said with melancholy emphasis. "'Ulrich!' I then studied I, in that eager and painful gaze with which the memory traces the changes that time and the passions produce in the human face." In that of ulric however there was little to be noted but the development of a more mature womanhood with such a shadowing of thought as deeper reflection and diminished hopes are apt to bring but had she not been apprised of the person of him she sought and had her memory not retained so vivid an impression of the past it is probable that the wife of heinrich frey might not have recognized the features of the gayest and handsomest cavalier of the palatinate in the sunken but still glowing eye, the grizzled beard, and the worn though bold lineaments of the anchorite. Thou, Odo, and a penitent, Ulric added, one of a stricken soul, thou seest me, sworn to mortifications and sorrow. If repentance come at all, let it be welcome. Thou leanest on a rock, and thy soul will be upheld. The recluse made a vague gesture, which his companion believed to be the usual sign of the cross. She meekly imitated the symbol and, bowing her head, repeated an ave. In all great changes in religions and politics, the spirit of party attaches importance to immaterial things, which, by practice and convention, come to be considered as the evidence of opinion. Thus it is, when revolutions are sudden and violent, that so many mistake their symbols for their substance, and men cast their lives on the hazards of battle in order to support an empty name, a particular disposition of colors in an ensign, or some idle significations of terms that were never well explained, long after the real merits of the controversy have been lost by the cupidity and falsehood of those entrusted with the public welfare. And thus it is, that here, where all change has been gradual and certain, that the neglect of these Trifles has subjected the country to the imputation of inconsistency because in attending so much to the substance of their work it has overlooked so many of those outward signs which by being the instruments of excitement in other regions obtain a value that has no influence among ourselves. The reformation made early and rude inroads upon the formula of the romish church. The cross ceased to be a sign in favor with the Protestant, and after three centuries, it is just beginning to be admitted that this sacred symbol is a more fitting ornament of one of those silent fingers pointing to the skies, which so touchingly adorn our churches than the representation of a barnyard fowl had Ulric been more critical in this sort of distinctions, or had her mind been less occupied with her own sad reflections, she might have thought the movement of the hermit's hand, when he made the sign alluded to, had such a manner of indecision and doubt as equally denotes one new in practices of this nature or one about to abandon any long-established ritual. As it was, however, she noted nothing extraordinary, but silently took the seat to which the anchorite pointed while he placed himself on another. The earnest, wistful, and half-mournful look of each was renewed. They sat apart, with the torch throwing its light fully upon both. "'Grief hath borne heavily upon the Odo,' said Ulrich. "'Thou art much changed, and innocence and happiness have dealt tenderly by thee. Thou hast well merited this favor, Ulrich. Art thou long of this manner of life? Or touch I on a subject that may not be treated? I know not that I may refuse to give the world the profit of my lesson.' much less I could pretend to mystery with thee. I would gladly give thee consolation. Thou knowest there is great comfort and sympathy. Thy pity is next to the love of angels. But why speak of this? Thou art in the hut of a hermit condemned, of his own conscience, to privation and penitence. Go to thy happy home, and leave me to the solemn duty which I have allotted to be done this night. As he spoke, the anchorite folded his head in a mantle of coarse cloth. For he was evidently clad to go abroad, and he groaned. Nay, Odo, I quit thee not in this humor of thy mind. The sight of me hath added to thy grief, and it were uncharitable, more it were unkind, to leave thee thus. What wouldst thou, Ulric? Disburthen thy soul, this life of seclusion hath heaped a load too heavy on thy thoughts. Where hast thou passed the years of thy prime, Odo? What hath brought thee to this condition of bitterness?' Hast thou still so much of womanly mercy as to fill an interest in the fate of an outcast?' The paleness of Ulrich's cheek was succeeded by a mild glow. It was no sign of tumultuous feeling, but a gentle proof that a heart like hers never lost the affinities it had once fondly and warmly cherished. "'Can I forget the past?' she answered. "'Wart thou not the friend of my youth?' "'Nay, wert thou not my betrothed?' "'And dost thou acknowledge those long-cherished ties?' O Ulrich, with what maddened folly did I throw away jewel beyond price? But listen, and thou shalt know in what manner God hath avenged himself and thee. The Burgomaster's wife, though secretly much agitated, sat patiently awaiting while the hermit seemed preparing his mind for the revelation he was about to make. Thou hast no need to hear aught of my youth, he at length commenced. Thou wilt knowest that an orphan from childhood, of no mean estate and of noble birth, I entered on life exposed to all the hazards that beset the young and thoughtless. I had most of the generous impulses of one devoid of care, and a heart that was not needlessly shut against sympathy with the injured, and, I think I may say, one that was not closed against compassion." Thou dost not justice to thyself, Odo, say that thy hand was open, and thy heart filled with gentleness. The anchorite, humbled as he was by penitence and self-devotion, did not hear this opinion uttered by lips so gentle and so true without a change of features. His eye lighted, and for a moment it gazed toward his companion with some of its former bright youthful expression. But the change escaped Ulric, who was occupied with the generous impulse that caused her, thus involuntarily, to vindicate the hermit to himself. It might have been so, the latter resumed, coldly after a moment of thought, but in youth, unless watched and wisely directed, our best qualities may become instruments of our fall. I was of violent passions above all, miserable traces in that unerring index, the countenance prove how violent— Ulric had no answer to this remark for she had felt how easy it is for the strong character to attach the mild and how common it is for the human heart to set value on qualities that serve to throw its own into relief. When I knew thee, Ulric, the influence of thy gentleness, the interest that thou gavest me reason to believe thou felt in my happiness, and the reverence which the young of our sex so readily paid to innocence and beauty and faith in thine served to tame the lion of my reckless temper and to bring me for a time in subjection to thy gentleness. His companion looked grateful for his praise, but she remained silent. The tie between the young and the guiltless is one of nature's holiest mysteries. I loved thee, Ulric, purely and in perfect faith. The reverence I bear here in my solitude and penance to these signs of sacred character is not deeper, less tinctured with human passion, or more fervent than the respect I felt for thy virgin innocence." Ulrich trembled, but it was like the leaf quivering at the passage of a breath of air. For this I gave thee credit, Odo, she whispered, evidently afraid to trust her voice. Thou didst me justice. When thy parents consented to our union, I looked forward to the marriage with blessed hope. For young though I was, I so well understood myself as to foresee that some spirit, persuasive good and yet firm as thine, was necessary to tame me. Woman winds herself about the heart of man by her tenderness, nay, by her very dependence, in a manner to affect that which his pride would refuse to a power more evident. And couldst thou fill all this? Ulric? I felt more, was convinced of more, and dreaded more, than I ever dared avow, but all feelings of pride are now past. What further shall I say? Thou knowest the manner in which bold spirits began to assail the mysteries and dogmas of the venerable church that has so long governed Christendom, and that some were so hardy as to anticipate the reasonings and changes of more prudent heads by rash acts. Tis ever thus with young and heated reformers of abuses. Seeing not but the wrong, they forget the means by which it has been produced, and overlook the sufficient causes which may mitigate if they do not justice the evil. And this unhappily was thy temper, I deny it not, young and without knowledge of the various causes that temper every theory which reduced to practice. I looked eagerly to the end alone, though Ulric longed to exhort some apology from the penitent for his own failings, she continued silent after minutes of thought. The discourse at length proceeded. There were some among thy friends, Odo, who believed the outrage less than the convent reported. they trusted too much to their wishes said the anchorite in a subdued tone it is most true that heated with wine and maddened with anger i did violence in presence of my armed followers to those sacred elements which catholics so reverence in a moment of inebriated frenzy i believed the hoarse applause of drunken parasites and the confusion of a priest of more account than the just anger of god i impiously trampled on the host and sorely hath god since trampled on my spirit poor odo that wicked act changed the course of both our lives and dost thou now adore that being to whom this great indignity was offered hast thy mind returned to the faith of thy youth "'Tis not necessary in order to fill the burthen of my guilt!' exclaimed the Anchorite, whose eyes began to lose the human expression which had been kindled by communion with this gentle being and gleamings of a remorse that had been so long fed by habits of morbid devotion. "'Is not the Lord of the universe my God? The insult was to him. Whether there be error in this or that form of devotion—' I was in his temple, at the foot of his altar, in the presence of his spirit. There did I mock his rule and defy his power, and this for a silly triumph over a terrified monk. heart-stricken Odo, where suffest thou refuge after the frantic act? The anchorite looked intently at his companion, as if a flood of distressing and touching images were pressing painfully upon his memory. My first thought was of thee, he said. The rash blow of my sword was no sooner given than it seemed suddenly to open an abyss between us. I knew thy gentle piety, and could not even in that moment of frenzy deceive myself as to thy decision, when in a place of safety I wrote the letter which thou answered, and which answer was so firm and admirable a mixture of holy horror and womanly feeling. When thou renounced me, I became a vagrant on earth, and from that hour to the moment of my return hither have i been a wanderer much influence and heavy fines saved my estates which the life of a pilgrim and a soldier has greatly augmented but never till this summer have i felt the courage necessary to revisit the scenes of my youth and whither strayed thou odo I have sought relief in every device of man, the gaiety and dissipation of capitals, hermitages, for this is but the fourth of which I am the tenant, arms and rude hazards by sea. Of late have I much occupied myself in the defense of roads of that unhappy and fallen bulwark of Christendom. But wherever I have dwelt, or in whatever occupation I have sought relief, the recollection of my crime and of its punishment pursues me Ulrich. I am a man of woe. Nay, dear Odo, there is mercy for offenders more heavy than thou. Thou wilt return to thy long-deserted castle and be at peace. And thou, Ulrich, hath my crime caused thee sorrow? Thou at least art happy? The question caused the wife of Heinrich Frey uneasiness. Her sentiments toward Odo von Ritterstein had partaken of passion and were still clothed with hues of the imagination. While her attachment to the Burgomaster ran in the smoother channel of duty and habit, still time, a high sense of her sex's obligations, and the common bond of Meta, kept her feelings in the subdued state which most fitted her present condition. Had her will be consulted, she would not have touched on this portion of the subject at all. But, since it was introduced, she felt the absolute necessity of meeting it with composure. I am happy in an honest husband with an affectionate child, she said set thy heart at rest on this account. We were not fitted for each other, Odo. Thy birth alone offered obstacles we might not properly have overcome. The anchorite bowed his head, appearing to respect her reserve. The silence that succeeded was not free from embarrassment. It was relieved by the tones of a bell that came from the hill of Limburg the anchorite arose and all other feeling was evidently lost in a sudden return of that diseased repentance which had so long haunted him and which in truth had more than once gone nigh to unsettle his reason that signal ulric is for me and dost thou go forth to limburg at this hour "'And humble penitent, I have made my peace with the Benedictines by means of gold, "'and I go to struggle for my peace with God. "'This is the anniversary of my crime, and there will be midnight masses for its expiation.' "'The wife of Heinrich Frey heard of his intention without surprise, "'though she regretted the sudden interruption of their interview. "'Odo, thy blessing,' said Ulric, kneeling. "'Thou askest this mockery of me?' cried the hermit wildly. "'Go, Ulric, leave me with my sins!' The anchorite appeared irresolute for a moment and then he rushed madly from the hut leaving the wife of heinrich frey still kneeling in its center end of volume 2 chapter 3 read by joel kendrick